On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give from washington dc this is on the ground and today we explore the truth about white supremacist violence from buffalo to ukraine to palestine on this month's episode of the F-Word on Fascism with Professor Gerald Horn. What's remarkable is that there has been the creation of this new world identity known as whiteness, which has morphed into white supremacy, which now feels challenged by the demographic changes in the United States of America. And yet many of our friends on the left rarely ascribe identity politics to the Euro-American majority. And as the Supreme Court is poised to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision on abortion rights, women vow to fight back. And so I ask, after which failed pregnancy should I have been imprisoned? Would it have been after the first miscarriage? After doctors used what would be an illegal drug to abort the lost fetus? Would you have put me in jail after the second miscarriage? Perhaps that would have been the time. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, four days after a self-professed white supremacist shot to death 10 black people and wounded three others in Buffalo, New York, the House of Representatives dusted off and passed a law introduced five years ago to combat domestic terrorism. Only one House Republican, Adam Kinziger of Illinois, voted for the measure. And so because of the arcane 60-vote filibuster rule, this effort to combat domestic terrorism is expected to die in the Senate, along with similar defeats for voting rights, police reform, and for proposed laws to address the climate catastrophe student debt, affordable health care, or even the proliferation of assault-style weapons of war like the one used in the Buffalo Massacre. But when it comes to the issue of white supremacy, corporate politicians here of both parties have gotten themselves into a trick bag. Many Republican lawmakers have openly espoused the same great replacement conspiracy theory as the murder suspect in Buffalo. For example, accusing Democrats of supporting immigration reform in order to bolster the numbers of black and brown voters to replace or outnumber white voters. But on the other hand, Democrats, including almost all members of the Congressional Black Caucus, 
voted to send $40 billion additional dollars to fund and arm the military in Ukraine, which includes self-professed Nazis who hero-worship Stefan Bandera, a Nazi collaborator in World War II, who killed scores of Jews and Poles in documented atrocities. And only independent journalists point out that the Buffalo Killer, who is now indicted on murder charges, used the same Nazi black sun insignia that the Nazi Azov Battalion uses in Ukraine. On the ground contributor Chantel James attended a program of solidarity with Palestine this week, and speakers there drew even more parallels between the massacre in Buffalo and U.S. foreign policy. On Tuesday evening, Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ hosted Eyewitness Palestine for a discussion on Black and Palestinian solidarity that served as a fundraiser for their upcoming delegation to Palestine. Speakers were Lucy Murphy, Maurice Cook, and Dave Zirin. Dave Zirin drew from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words and spoke of the solidarity and parallels between the struggles against anti-black racism in the U.S. and struggles against Zionism in Palestine. In the U.S., as we've all learned all too well, this is called the Great Replacement Theory. But in Israel, they also refer to what they call demographic time bombs. In both cases, these calls to fear is also a call to violence. And in both cases, racist TV blowhards and politicians screech these theories, amping up the temperatures of those predisposed to kill. And make no mistake about it, Steel Wool could not scrub away the blood that's on Tucker Carlson's hands for what happened in Buffalo. But while the worst of the GOP in this country echoes this, and they are condemned by the Democratic Party on the floors of Congress, make no mistake about it, the Democratic Party also supports these kinds of theories when it comes to their support of the Israeli state. They have the same blood on their hands, and they are willing to support these theories when they're espoused by their allies thousands of miles away. After the event, those gathered departed for a vigil for the recently slain Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Speakers shared that before her execution by the Israeli state, Shireen had been noted for her work bringing black life in Washington, D.C. to Arabic-language news audiences. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Those murdered in Buffalo were Roberta A. Drury, age 32, Margus D. Morrison, age 52, Andre McNeil, age 53, Aaron Salter, age 55, Geraldine Talley, age 62, Celestine Cheney, age 65, Hayward Patterson, age 67, Catherine Massey, age 72, Pearl Young, age 77, and Ruth Whitfield, age 86. The widow of Hayward Patterson, Tirza Patterson spoke at a press conference on Thursday as her son, Jacques, known as Jake Patterson, stood next to her covering his face. I need a village to help me raise and be here for my son because he has no father. The God we serve is his father, but a natural father he does not have. And it was taken from him early. So we ask for your prayers. Continue to pray for us that God gives us strength 
to go through this and keep my son in your prayers. At almost the same time the Buffalo Massacre was unfolding on May 14th, tens of thousands of women started marching here in Washington, D.C., from the Washington Monument to the Supreme Court, one of dozens of rallies across the country coordinated by the Women's March under the theme, Bands Off Our Bodies. The nationwide protests were in reaction to the leaked Supreme Court decision, indicating that the court plans to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion legal across the United States. While many speakers addressed voting in this year's midterm elections and in 2024, there were also calls to pressure Congress to codify abortion rights as a law and not as a court decision. But the women's movement is being re-energized. Mary Kay Henry, president of the Two Million Strong Service Employees International Workers Union, said that abortion rights are intertwined with all of our human rights. Working class women, black, Latina, Asian Pacific Islander, indigenous and white, are already struggling to make ends meet. April and I know that many of these women are structured into jobs that are poverty wage jobs because of corporate power and systemic racism. And these same working class women of every race cannot afford a plane, a train, or a bus ticket to another state just to get the health care they deserve. And without the ability to determine their own reproductive destinies and family size, they cannot hope to build a better future. Working people everywhere understand that our fundamental rights are intertwined. Women's rights, workers' rights, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, immigrant rights, climate justice, when you pull one thread of this fabric of our democracy unravels. On May 11th, the Senate failed to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. On Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on access to abortions and the impact that overturning Roe v. Wade would have on access. More from the hearing after headlines. And finally, in culture and media, Israel announced that it would not investigate the assassination of veteran Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was shot in the face and killed by Israeli military while covering an Israeli raid on the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. Abu Akla, a Palestinian-American, was wearing a vest and helmet identifying her as press. Her producer was also shot in the back as he attempted to run away but survived. Israeli officials are calling the shooting an accident. In a statement to Al Jazeera, Abu Akla's family said, we were expecting this from the Israeli side. We urge the United States in particular, since she is a U.S. citizen 
and the international community to open a just and transparent investigation and to put an end to the killings, the family said. The Intercept reported this week that Representatives Andre Carson of Indiana and Lou Correa of California are gathering signatures for a letter demanding an FBI investigation into Abu Akhle's killing and a determination from the State Department as to whether U.S. laws were violated. Also, the Biden administration announced this week that its controversial Disinformation Governance Board, which operated under the Department of Homeland Security, would be quote-unquote paused. The board's executive director, Nina Jankowitz, also resigned. We'll keep following this story. And on May 17th, I was among the protesters outside the Department of Justice demanding that Attorney General Merrick Garland drop all charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and that he be released immediately. The rally was timed to coordinate with another rally in London one day before UK Home Secretary Priti Patel was scheduled to rule on whether Assange, who is not a U.S. citizen, would be extradited to the U.S. to face charges that he violated the U.S. Espionage Act when he revealed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. For this act of journalism, Assange would be sentenced to 170 years in prison. As of this broadcast, no decision has been announced by Patel. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I come from a generation of pain where murder is minor. Rebellious and more jealous, a chip you for designer. Belt buckles and cloud overzealous and prone to violence. Make the wrong turn, be your will of the will alignment. Residue burn, mister the inner city. Miscommunication to keep homo detector busy. No protection is risky. Desensitized, I vandalize pain. Covered up and camouflage. Get used to hearing arsenal rain. Analyze, risk your life, take the charge. Homies don't f your baby mama once you hit the yard. That's culture. 23 hour lockdown. Then somebody called, said your little nephew was shot down. The coach Involved. I done seen do 17 hit the halfway house. Get out and get his thrown out. Looking to buy some car washes played out. New GoFundMe accounts to proceed. A brand new victim of shatter those dreams. The culture. Chair recognizes Ms. McBath for five minutes. Thank you so much, Madam Chair, and thank you so much to Chairman Natler, and thank you so much to our witnesses today. We really appreciate you being here under such duress. Like so many women in America, for years I struggled to get pregnant. My husband and I, we tried everything that we could do to start a family of our own, and finally we were successful. I had never been so happy. And I prayed for this moment for so many years. I wanted to tell everyone. I just wanted to shout it from all of the mountaintops. For weeks, I began to dream about our life and our future together. And then one day, I woke up covered in blood. It's hard to describe the agony of a miscarriage. It's heartbreak. It's helplessness, it's pain, and it's profound sadness. Millions of women suffer from them, and I've heard from many who felt guilty like I did, 
who felt as though that we weren't worthy of having a child. Those are the same feelings that crept through my mind. And every time I've had these difficult discussions with other women, I remind them that they are strong and that they are powerful beyond measure and that their worth is far more than their ability to procreate. However, it seems those in support of this ruling disagree. After my second miscarriage, I wondered in my grief again if God had decided I was never meant to be a mother. So when I finally got pregnant again, I was overjoyed. It was as if I believed that God was giving me and my husband, finally, he had a plan for us to be parents. But after four months, while feeling terror and trauma in my heart, I was rushed to the emergency room. There with my doctor and my husband, I learned that I had suffered a fetal demise or a stillbirth. There again, I was filled with anguish and sorrow and guilt, and I tried so hard, and still I felt like I failed trying to be a mother. My doctor thought it would be better to, and safer to end the pregnancy naturally without the medicines so commonly used. So for two weeks, I carried my dead fetus and waited for me to go into labor. For two weeks, people passed me on the street, telling me how beautiful I looked, asking how far along I was, and saying that they were so excited for me and my future with my child. For two weeks, I carried a lost pregnancy and the torment that comes with it. I never went into labor on my own. When my doctor finally induced me, I faced the pain of labor without hope for a living child. This is my story. It's uniquely my story. And yet, it's not so unique. Millions of women in America, women in this room, women at your homes, and women you love and cherish have suffered a miscarriage. And so I ask, on behalf of these women, after which failed pregnancy should I have been imprisoned? Would it have been after the first miscarriage? After doctors used what would be an illegal drug to abort the lost fetus? Would you have put me in jail after the second miscarriage? Perhaps that would have been the time. Forced to reflect in confinement at the guilt I felt. The guilt that so many women feel after losing their pregnancies. Or would you have put me behind bars after my stillbirth? After I was forced to carry a dead fetus for weeks, after asking God if I was ever going to be able to raise a child, and I asked because the same medicine used to treat my failed pregnancies is the same medicine states like Texas would make illegal. 
I ask because if Alabama makes abortion murder, does it make miscarriage manslaughter? I ask because I want to know if the next woman who has a miscarriage at three months, if she will be forced to carry her dead fetus to term. So for the women in your life whose stories you do not know, for the women across the country whose lives you may not understand, and for the women in America who have gone through things you simply cannot comprehend, I say to you this, women's rights are human rights. Reproductive health care is health care. And medical decisions should be made by women and those that they trust, not politicians and officials. We have a choice. We can be the nation that rolls back the clock, that rolls back the rights of women, and that strips them of their very liberty. Or we can be the nation of choice, the nation where every woman can make her own choice. Freedom is our right to choose. That was Representative Lucy McBath of Georgia speaking Wednesday, May 18th, 2022 at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on access to abortion services and the potential impact of overturning Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that created the national right to abortion. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Walk around like everything is in control Favor come with favors and you can't say no Go out the way to make the coin available That's what I call love The closest ones afraid to say they need some time Turn around is life or death, but you don't mind Go out the way to say you made the compromise That's what I call love For the time it'll go to not be there when somebody needs you You say no and all you done Give them amnesia. One thing I've learned Love can change with the seasons And I can't please everybody No, I can't please everybody Wait, you can't please everybody No, I can't please everybody This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, millions of people saw Peyton Gendron surrender to police on Saturday, May 14th, after he shot to death 10 people and wounded three others in a racially motivated massacre in, in Buffalo in New York, which has again raised the specter of racist violence by fascists here in the United States. But far fewer consumers of news in the U.S. and Europe especially have seen video of Nazi fighters in Ukraine surrendering to Russian forces after being holed up underground at a steel plant in Mariupol. When they were taken as prisoners by Russia, they were photographed so that their Nazi tattoos and their political affiliations could be confirmed. 
one of the Azov Nazi insignia is the so-called Black Sun, which the Buffalo murderer also wore. And with these two scenes, one of domestic violence and terrorism and the other of the U.S. proxy war against Russia, we will kick off this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism. And joining me is On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of more than 40 books, including his latest, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I guess you heard in the intro, I was struck by these two images for a number of reasons, but the first being the ongoing seemingly willful denial of U.S. corporate media to identify these influential units of the Ukrainian military as Nazi units, as Nazi fighters, and in the process denying the last eight years of war there when these same forces were involved in the deaths of 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine targeting the Russian-speaking populations there. And it took independent journalists like Ben Norton, who we've featured on this show, to point out the fact that this confessed white supremacist in Buffalo wore the same insignia as some of these Azov Nazi fighters. And so this is just the latest proof to me of the latest quagmire that the U.S. and NATO have gotten themselves into that they don't want to recognize. So let's just start with your first impressions over what has been a very traumatic week for many African-Americans? Well, first of all, let's start with the so-called replacement theory. Uh, Understandably, the finger of accusation is being pointed at Fox News and their host, Tucker Carlson, for circulating this idea that the Democrats and others would like to replace the so-called white population with immigrants who therefore will then vote against the Republicans. Recall that in Charlottesville, August 2017, with the neo-fascist march, a chant that was heard was that Jews will not replace us. This signaled the idea that prominent Jewish Americans most often pointed to is the billionaire philanthropist George Soros is in on this so-called conspiracy. What's striking is that replacement theory in many ways comes from France, which like the insignia of the Black Sun, that the terrorists in Buffalo was wearing suggests the international ties and international connections of global white supremacy. But what's even more striking in contrast is that the victims, uh, speaking of black people in the first instance in Buffalo, do not seem at the leadership level, at least, to have a similar internationalist outlook and oftentimes disparage it. But That's not the only critique that could be made. Uh, For example, as you know, many of our friends on the left often toss around rather loosely this term identity politics, which they attach rather sloppily to any sort of manifestation of black self-assertion. Whereas in the Americas, particularly in North America, particularly in the United States, there has been the creation of this identity new world identity known as whiteness, which has morphed into white supremacy, which now feels challenged by the demographic changes in the United States of America. And yet many of our friends on the left rarely 
ascribe identity politics to the Euro-American majority. But not only that, if you look at replacement theory a a bit more carefully, uh, what's notable is that the original replacement honestly took took place with the invasion of the Europeans in the 1500s, where they replaced the indigenous population, not only replaced them, but liquidated them, and then imported manacled and shackled Africans to do the labor. And so it's ironic that in 2022, uh, you have this idea of so-called replacement theory uh, being pronounced and articulated by these ultra-rightist terrorists. And going back to the Ukraine connection, I think it's important for your audience to know that many contradictions are now emerging with regard to that ongoing crisis. Number one, in Germany, which is essential to U.S. escapades in Ukraine, you not only have had the recent defeat of the Social Democrats of Chancellor Schultz in the California of Germany, speaking of North Rhine-Westphalia in a recent election, but another defeat in the other uh, so-called German state, uh, speaking of Schleswig-Holstein. Now, the New York Times ascribes this somehow to the allegation that uh, Chancellor Schultz has been derelict (laughs) in funding and arming the Ukrainians, which is really a stretch. Uh, I actually see it otherwise. In fact, I see it as a reaction uh, to his bellicosity. Uh, Likewise, with regard to the U.S. ruling elite, uh, much attention has been pointed to the op-ed written in the Financial Times of London a few days ago by Anne-Marie Slaughter, a former State Department official, a former dean of Princeton, now the leader of a prominent Democratic Party-oriented think tank, which raised searching and probing questions about U.S. policy. Uh, This is even more remarkable because those who have membership in the U.S. ruling elite on a question like Ukraine rarely break ranks. So her breaking ranks, obviously, is worthy of note. And then the other contradiction, the uh, application by Finland and Sweden to join NATO, the contradiction there being that Turkey, the southeastern anchor of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization led by the United States, will be objecting because of Helsinki's and Stockholm's all too close relationship from the Turks' point of view uh, to organizations encompassing the Kurdish minority of Turkey that Turkey has deemed to be terrorists as well as other entities uh, globally. But it's not only that. You might have noticed that addressing the U.S. Congress uh, just this week was the prime minister of Greece uh, who took time at this Washington address to raise searching and probing questions about the Turks. As we know, there have been decades long, if not centuries long, conflicts and contradictions between the Turks and the Greeks. And even though U.S. commentators, including Secretary of State Blinken, are reassuring us that the Turks really just want to be bought off in order to drop their opposition to Finnish and Swedish entrance into NATO, because, of course, it would require uh, unanimity on the part of the members. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. And so that's something we're going to have to keep a close eye on. And then there's the question of energy. Uh, Certain commentators are suggesting that the boycott of Russian energy 
uh, by the Germans in particular, will set back the German economy. Uh, obviously, the play there is for U.S. natural gas producers to supplant the Russians in supplying natural gas to Germany, but it'll take a while for Germany to build the facilities to accept liquefied natural gas from the Texas-Louisiana border. And that's not only to mention that relevant point, but also to mention that at the same time, the United Nations Secretary General, as has been his tendency of, of late, has been warning about the proliferation and use of fossil fuels and pleading for more decisive turn to renewable energy, as has been the case for Brussels as well. But if they do that, that will obviously come into conflict with the Texas, Louisiana uh, natural gas uh, producers. Another point your audience should pay close and careful attention to is a possible attempted consolidation between the European Union and the United States of America. Now, you see this with this so-called trade and technology council that they've knocked together, uh, which supposedly is going to try to harmonize the oftentimes conflicting agendas of Brussels and Washington with regard to cyberspace and other new technologies. But the problem there is that the European Union is now in a snit about the fact that London, the Brexit-oriented Boris Johnson of London, is seeking to rewrite the terms of Brexit. At the same time, Mr. Johnson is trying to creep ever closer to Washington by becoming more hawkish, believe it or not, on the Ukraine crisis than Washington itself. So it's going to be interesting to see how the European Union moves into a closer relationship with the United States of America. At the same time, London, Great Britain, is left on the outside looking in. I should also mention that Washington has finally decided, it appears, to make a step in the right direction to improving relations with Cuba. Uh, this may be tied to the attempt to loosen sanctions against oil producing Venezuela, allowing Chevron to once again uh, enter that market. That may be a prelude to the United States trying to attract um, member states of the Organization of American States to this so-called summit that's being planned for Los Angeles of the member states of the OAS in Los Angeles in just a few weeks. But once again, the contradiction there is that the powerful South Florida Cuba lobby uh, that not only includes Republicans like Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, but Democrats like Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey will not necessarily be in favor of that uh, particular option that Washington is pursuing. And I should also mention this point, because I think it's going to be relevant going forward. And that is that the Pope, the Holy See, made comments in the last week or two that were interpreted as being pro-Moscow when he suggested that NATO, quote, barking, unquote, at the door of Russia uh, helped to engender this present crisis. Of course, the line on this side of the Atlantic is that this uh, crisis is basically a product of unprovoked aggression. Now, this apparent conflict between the Holy See and Washington 
uh, may have deeper roots because if you look at Latin America, the so-called backyard of the United States of America, you see that Washington of late has been trying to build alliances with various Protestant evangelical forces, not least in Brazil, where the Trump of the tropics, Mr. Bolsonaro, happens to be Catholic, but of course his spouse is affiliated with these evangelicals of the Protestant faith. And going forward, we're going to have to pay careful attention to this conflict because we know that in many Latin American countries, the Roman Catholic Church has been not only to the left of the Protestant evangelicals, but in many instances to the left of Washington uh, as well. I should also mention this other point, which Washington Post columnist Fareed Zakaria mentioned uh, just in the last few days, which is that there's growing concern, uh, not only in Moscow and New Delhi and Beijing, but also in Brussels, about this plan of Washington to engage in asset seizures of Russian assets, supposedly to compensate the Ukrainians for the damage that the Russians were said to have inflicted. Now, uh, this is raising alarm bells in the aforementioned capitals because many are wondering, particularly Beijing, will they be next on the list of asset seizures, uh, which oftentimes had been thought <laughs> to be a tactic of socialists and communists coming to power and then they nationalize foreign enterprises. But what they should realize is that capitalism U.S. style entered the world scene by seizing the assets of the Native Americans, speaking of their land, and then seeking the assets of enslaved uh, Africans, speaking of their labor. So to that extent, it's not necessarily anything new. We're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground. We'll be right back. North America tour, my eye closed. V54 Fum, she was a model. Dedicated to the songs I wrote in the Bible. Eyes like green, penetrating the moonlight. Hair done in a bun, energy in the room like Big Bang for Theory. God, hoping you hear me. Phone off the ring to tell the world I'm busy. Fair enough. Green eyes that her mother didn't care enough. Sympathize when her daddy in the chain gang. Her first brother got killed, he was 21. I was nine when they put Lamont in the grave. Heartbroken when I still didn't say goodbye. Chad left his body after we FaceTimed. Green eyes said you'd be okay. First tour, sex to pain away. I grieve different. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism. And Gerald, your new book that we mentioned, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism, because of that book and other books I know you've written, you take a, a long view of many of the contemporary issues like this that we're discussing. So I wanted to play a clip of Tucker Carlson. This is him speaking last year on his uh, Fox News evening program, where he is uh, talking about Biden's immigration policy, and he talks about the so-called Great Replacement. 
an unrelenting stream of immigration. But why? Well, Joe Biden just said it to change the racial mix of the country. That's the reason to reduce the political power of people whose ancestors lived here and dramatically increase the proportion of Americans newly arrived from the third world. And then Biden went further. He said that non-white DNA is the, quote, source of our strength. Imagine saying that. This is the language of eugenics. It's horrifying. But there's a reason Biden said it. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. So there are a couple things related to that I've thought about this week. We've been here just last weekend, you know, marching with other women to secure abortion rights. And it occurred to me that this same so-called great replacement conspiracy started not just recently or even in Charlottesville when those tiki torch, you know, marching uh, white men were at the University of Virginia, but also, you know, centuries ago or certainly in the 19th century when whites were afraid that the enslaved and emancipated Africans in this country would outnumber whites. And so some of the same restrictions on white women getting abortions or the fear that white women getting abortions could decrease the number of white people here. So some of these same ideas started around the same time, or at least in the beginning of the 20th century. So I just thought that we could talk a little bit more about the connections between those theories here and what is not talked about very much in this country, the attraction like a magnet to Ukraine uh, by so many Nazi far right forces, not only here in the U.S., but throughout Europe people going to Ukraine because it's seen as this kind of, of Nazi haven uh, where they can fight Russians, which some some of them consider like lesser humans. And we know that there's a long history of Ukra- in Ukraine of this far-right ideology. Well, what you're talking about, if, if I may, is the specter of fascism, which is something we should be concerned about, not only when it raises its ugly head in Central and Eastern Europe, but also when it raises its head on these shores. Uh, Speaking of the aforementioned replacement theory, which as you suggested, is just a replay of what the European invaders perpetrated on the indigenous hundreds of years ago when they sought to not only replace them, but liquidate them. And speaking of Buffalo, there is a perverse irony in the fact that this racist massacre took place in this Western New York state city. Because recall that only a few months ago, you had the specter of a black woman socialist, DSA person, India Walton, on the verge of becoming mayor of Buffalo. But the Democratic Party establishment panicked. They went into hysterics and organized a campaign to ensure that she would not be entering City Hall as mayor. Now, that's relevant because we know from history that one reliable way to beat back ethnic and racist sectarianism, which was embodied in the massacre in Buffalo a few days ago, is to build strong class-based movements 
that cut across these boundaries of racist sectarianism. That's what India Walton was seeking to do. That perhaps is one of the reasons why her campaign was sabotaged by the Democratic Party establishment, which makes it very difficult for some of us to accept the crocodile tears that are being shed so copiously by Democratic Party leaders in the aftermath of this Buffalo massacre because they helped to undermine one of the tools that could have been used to undermine in turn racist sectarianism as manifested in Buffalo. So I think that that is one of the main takeaways from this very tragic episode from Western New York State. It's so interesting you mentioned that because that's one of the thoughts I had when I heard Mayor Byron Brown from Buffalo speaking on Sunday, the day after this massacre, because to defeat uh, India Walton, he basically joined forces with some of the most right-wing or reactionary parts of the politic in Buffalo. And that includes the police. And when you hear someone like uh, Mr. Brown, you know, who is African-American speaking, and he talks about, you know, right after this tragedy, talking about how in his time, you know, we were taught that we had to be twice as good to be considered half as good. And it sounded to me like he was blaming this hardworking black community beset for decades by uh, systemic racism, segregation, the destruction of their neighborhood through so-called urban renewal and the highway destroying, bifurcating the community. So many of the same stories, you know, you hear in community after community in terms of black communities being um, dispossessed. And, you know, this one grocery store was the only grocery store. And before that, it was a food desert. So that's what I was really thinking about. And this is coming on the heels of all these primaries where you see pretty much, you know, so-called progressives like Nina Turner being targeted by the Democratic establishment so that people who have any uh, inkling to fight for not only black people, but all working people, the Democratic Party is, like you said, dead set against them. And they come out and align with some of the most reactionary forces like APAC and other types of super PACs to defeat them. Well, let me mention another point that connects your latter point, connects the state of New York and connects the question of Ukraine. A leading member of the Congressional Black Caucus, speaking of Gregory Meeks of Southeastern Queens, the mm. chairperson of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, has just promoted legislation in the House that passed 415 to 9, although it has not been signed into law as of yet, that would punish certain African states that were perceived to be too close to Moscow that are not towing the line with regard to sanctions against Russia. Now, this is quite staggering. Uh, we had thought, at least some have thought, that leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus were not in business, not in Washington, to carry legislation to punish African states for pursuing an independent foreign policy. 
And obviously, they're going to have to punish quite a number of, of African states uh, because so many uh, abstained on key United Nations resolutions, particularly with regard to expelling Russia from the Human Rights Council. Uh, we're thinking of the Southern Africa bloc led by South Africa, uh, not to mention uh, Algeria. And in any case, I think that this legislation is going to be wanting because what's happening now is that by cutting itself off from the natural resources of Russia, speaking of the European Union, inevitably the EU is going to have to turn south to Algeria for natural gas. They're going to have to turn towards Nigeria and Angola with regard to petroleum. They're going to have to turn to South Africa with regard to palladium, which is essential to the green economy. So it doesn't seem to me that Washington is going to be in a position to punish some of the major players in Africa. Although, to be fair, it will allow the United States to punish perhaps some smaller economies in Africa, which then, of course, would be consistent with the U.S. role of being a bully. But once again, uh, it's disappointing, to put it mildly, that Gregory Meeks would carry such legislation. What you're telling me reminds me of this other issue that I've, I've, heard, I've heard some discussion of recently, and we've talked about it before, where we have traditionally associated fascism with the far right. But when we look at neoliberal policies put forth by the Biden administration, by neoliberal politicians like uh, Gregory Meeks, and when we say neoliberal, we're talking about a system that always thinks that the, the market and that services, uh, goods and services, um, and any type of all of our needs can be basically carted off and given to corporations and that the market can handle it. Maybe that's the most simplistic way that I can think about it in terms of, you know, in this short segment. And that really the neoliberal dis establishment that is really come together to attack Russia, to ignore the fact that NATO was, as the Pope said, you know, barking at Russia's door uh, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that you have now, when you look at not only what's happening in Ukraine, what the U.S. and this whole process is doing to Europe, the whole attack on information journalists, uh, like Julian Assange, like this recently disbanded dis disinformation governance board here in Washington. And I, I just can't forget this, this recent horrific assassination of the uh, Palestinian American journalist, Shireen Abu Akla. Uh, and she uh, w really without much of a big outcry from uh, the politicians and the elected officials here, and then after assassinating her, they attacked her funeral. And to see the scene of these Israeli forces with batons attacking the pallbearers to the point where they almost dropped her coffin, um, it was horrific. And I can't think of anything more pro profane and, and barbaric than that. And when I think about an apartheid state, I mean, many observers who've gone there they call it a fascist state. And I couldn't think of any other uh, word uh, for that, you know, seeing that scene. Right on. 
the neoliberal establishment also is very much attached to fascism. I wanted to play connected to this Joe Biden's statement about the poison of white supremacy and then follow up after that. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison <laughs> running through our, it really is. Running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. I mean, no more. We need to say as clearly and force as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. None. Okay, so that's a portion of Biden speaking after visiting Buffalo. And I was struck by a few things in his comment, because, of course, in, in the many conversations we've had, we know that white supremacy is very much a part of the, the founding of this country. But also, because you were talking about the international arena in terms of Meeks and this ridiculous legislation targeting Africa, uh, right now, the U.S. is also targeting Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela in terms of uh, trying to disinvite them or not invite them to this so-called Summit of the Americas planned uh, in a few weeks in Los Angeles. And it seems to be backfiring on the U.S. in terms of so many countries, uh, starting out with Mexico, saying that no one should be excluded and vowing to boycott this uh, summit. and. On the activist front, we know that there is a people summit planned at the same time to basically protest this summit that the United States is trying to engineer to exclude uh, countries and to reward very violent regimes like Colombia to come. So I just wanted to end with those ideas, with your your thoughts on the connection of neoliberal policies to fascism uh, domestically, as we see how horribly, you know, COVID has been handled in terms of the more than a million people dead now because the market was basically allowed to handle <laughs> this pandemic and how we're also, by, by the way, handling how parents can get infant formula and but also how we're allowing these same kind of policies to handle to dictate our foreign policy. Well, speaking of dictating foreign policy, you see the same tendencies both globally and domestically. One shorthand definition of fascism is that it involves capitalism without the pretense of democracy. And certainly you don't have the pretense of democracy when you try to have a summit of hemispheric nations and excluding those whose policies you disagree with. It was one of the many reasons why Mexico, which is rapidly becoming the alternative leader of the hemisphere, is threatening to boycott this so-called summit. And one of the reasons why, of course, the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, just a few days ago, made a triumphal visit to socialist Cuba. And likewise, with regard to domestic policies, when you're speaking of neoliberalism, you're speaking of relying upon the market, you're speaking of relying upon a microscopic investor class, you're not talking about relying up upon the electorate through some sort of democratic mechanism, 
And that too is a kind of capitalism without the pretense of democracy. And I'm afraid to say that those of us in the United States who have even just a smidgen of knowledge of history are all too familiar with the fact that that particular setup, capitalism with no pretense of democracy, has been a guiding light, indeed a beacon, of settler colonialism uh, since its inception in North America hundreds of years ago. Well, I think that we're going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me again, Gerald. Thank you. And Professor Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Rivera and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Special thanks to Chantel James for her reporting on Eyewitness Palestine and to Lydia Curtis for reporting at the Women's March. You can let us know you like the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon.com at On The Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. Or I also link every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I, V like Victor, E-R-E-M, like Mary. The music we played this hour included three new tracks by Kendrick Lamar, The Heart Part 5, United by Grief, and Crown. And you know, our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.